Second Peter chapter one. We uh, read last week verses three through fifteen, and uh, we looked uh, at verses uh, three through five uh, and and six and seven uh, lightly. Uh, we're actually going to pick up uh, today in verse five, read through verse fifteen, and get as far as we can. So Second Peter chapter one verse five, and beside this, giving all diligence. Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. and But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Whereby, or excuse me, wherefore the rather brethren give diligence, diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fail. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. Let's pray. Ask the Lord to speak to you tonight. Father, we thank you for the word. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. God, I pray tonight as we look through these few verses that, Lord, you'd provide for us clarity understanding and illumination father i pray that we would not hear in vain but lord that we would hear with a mind to apply lord we love you tonight and we thank you in jesus name amen i want to uh, pick back up in verse five we were actually there last week we spoke about verses five through seven being a charge for growth and in godliness. Um, and we left off last week speaking about the idea of diligence, giving all diligence and to add these things to your faith. We were speaking about diligence and we talked about it as it relates to our personal responsibility to add to our faith. And that's really what uh, the Apostle Peter is speaking about here is our personal responsibility as born-again believers to add to our faith. Here we have the Apostle Peter who is writing this epistle to encourage believers to be on guard against false teachers and false doctrines. And 
he has turned uh, to personal responsibility within the first five verses. That should give us an idea of how important personal responsibility in the area of Christian growth is. Uh, we would consider for a moment, Peter, in these first five verses, he has introduced himself as a servant. He has uh, then prayed for the believers that grace and peace would be multiplied to them. He has uh, then identified the source of that grace and peace. And he's also identified this common nature that we all believers share. And then suddenly we find ourselves in the midst of a charge for growth and godliness that is rooted in personal responsibility. And that personal responsibility being towards diligence in adding unto your faith etc., etc. It must be pretty important. Uh, we, would, we would gather from that that, oh, listen, uh, I have some, some relative uh, high expectations placed on me as a born-again believer because I've been given these tremendous promises and I've been given this divine nature. And so what I do with that is a reflection of my own personal responsibility. It, it begins to paint a, a different picture. And, and I want to look uh, in depth tonight at those seven elements that he mentions there. Uh, we call them elements of holiness. But for a moment, I want us to think about this idea of personal responsibility. I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be redundant, nor do I want to be uh, uh, agitating uh, to your mind, but I do want you to, I want us to either agree or disagree about this idea of personal responsibility. And, and I want you to think uh, for a moment about personal responsibility within humanity at large. I believe that you'll appreciate this conversation if you'll have it with me. I want you to, in your mind, and you're welcome to say it out loud. You're in good company. Probably amongst folks that agree with you. Probably. <laughs> so however brave you are, uh, you just knock yourself out. Uh, but rating things from a 1 to a 10, with a 10 being the greatest. I want you to think about these things first from a secular perspective. So we're not thinking about... A spiritual conversation. We're not thinking about within the church. We're not particularly thinking about among believers. We're just thinking about at large. How, how would you rate from a secular perspective the way that people today approach the following areas and their personal responsibility towards them? So if we were to say health and wellness, at large, one to a ten, how do you think people address that from an area of personal responsibility? Say it. You think a ten. So, so you think everybody is just really tuned in to health and wellness. So I'm the, I'm the exception to the rule. Uh, Jeffrey says a four. 
okay? So, so from a personal responsibility level, it's talked about a lot, it's advertised a lot, it's sold a lot, but being acted upon from a personal responsibility, it's not very good, is it? But what about uh, financial wellness? It's pretty low, isn't it? I mean, the, the example is set for us at the government level. Right? I, I mean, my, my, one of my friends said to me the other day, is a trillion even a real number? And we have 17 of those, right? In debt. So, so what about morality? Are people personally responsible for their own morality? Not really, are they? What about work ethic? It's probably a little skewed right now, but it's low, isn't it? Don't get ahead of me. What about honesty? Do you think people are really personally responsible? They take that honesty as a personal responsibility. Uh, community? Caring about the community that they're in. Respectfulness? <laughs> it's turning into a bash session. Uh, maturity or growth, maturation or growth. What about this generational appreciation? It cuts both ways. Cuts both ways. Because whatever the generation under you is responsible for, you train them. So. So we see that from a secular perspective. We would say personal responsibility is pretty thin. We would agree on that, I think. Then we would look at it from a spiritual or a religious or a Christian perspective. So we'll say it this way. Within the body of Christ. Within the body of Christ. The publicly vocal body of Christ. We would look at those same things. Do you think the, the church, by and large, is much more personally responsible for their health and wellness than the typical world? But it's, it's not overwhelming, is it? What, what about... Financial wellness, will we say the same, some, somewhat, uh, what about morality? What, what if we were to look at abortion rate among people claiming to be Christian? Would that hurt the morality rate in the body of Christ? What if we were to look at the divorce rate among people claiming to be Christian? It would come down, wouldn't it? What, what about, uh, then we talk about work ethic within the church. Community. Being the church. Is personal responsibility really high among the church? Or are there entire church movements that are dedicated to seeker-friendly, seeker-sensitive entertainment. Why? Because work ethic within the body of Christ. 
is low. We would see the same thing about respectfulness and maturation and growth, and we certainly see the generational appreciation falter in the body of Christ. And then we would take that same line of questioning, this is, this is what I've done for the last few days, and say, so, okay, the world at large is low on these scales, and if I'm being honest, without being overtly negative, but I'm just being practical and pragmatic, I would have to say that even within the body of Christ, some of these things are much lower than they should be. Well, what if I ask those questions to myself personally? What if I then say, okay, Corey, <laughs> are you taking personal responsibility for your health and wellness? I'm fighting off that famine, man. I'm ready. If it happens, I can endure some of it. Right? And so we would see that idea of personal responsibility. And if we're honest, we're going to admit that the concept of personal responsibility is not the same today as it was 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, right? And if, if that's the fact, then we would say that it likely deteriorates with each new generation. And what is that deterioration based upon but the performance of the previous generation? There, there's an example that, that I think applies to this. Uh, so, you know, for, for years uh, I was self-employed and and I worked people. I mean, they were people that worked for me. And, and that started when I was, uh, 1988 is when we opened our first shop. I was 20 years old. By the time I was 22, I had six guys working for me. None of them younger than me. All of them older than me. In a hot, nasty, dog-eat-dog -dog environment. And that's just how we worked. <laughs> And so uh, my, dad would, my dad was constantly in my ear from the time, as long as I can remember. When I was 10 years old, dad was telling me how to manage people. I just remember this all my life. And this is what he would say to me, and he said a lot of it during those years of that first shop that we had. Listen, when you train somebody, train them 10 times better than you want them to be. Because... Sooner or later, they're going to regress. And hopefully when they regress, they'll be good enough to do the job you hired them to do. That's human nature. You just train them, train them, train them. And you, and you set the bar so high and you want it perfect. And then you let them back off and it's now acceptable to, to accomplish the job. Well, the, generationally... When a generation lowers the bar, the next generation is going to fail to achieve that bar. They're going to lower the bar. The book of Judges will ex uh, uh, show this or illustrate this perfect. But we can see it very clearly in America. The book of Judges has nothing on America. We can see the same type of 
cycle in America. And so we would consider this generationally in relation to personal responsibilities, we would see a continual decline in the previously mentioned areas due to a natural relaxation in expectation from one generation to the next. So just think about where we are. We are one generation. A typical generation is 20 years. We're one generation in to the 21st century. And we are unrecognizable compared to the first generation of the 20th century. That's only five generations. Just think about that. You want to tighten that spectrum up a little bit. I, I was born in 1968. There's two generations between me and the current generation. And we're almost incompatible. And so we, we see that Unfortunately, that decline in personal responsibilities has had an impact within the church as well. And I believe, uh, and I think that's the, this is the value of this passage, by the way, that the only way back, if there is such a thing, is through a revival of personal responsibilities. If we could... Revive that in our own walk, in our own life. That would make a big impact. So I want you to look at these seven elements. Thinking about this idea of personal responsibility. Where you are currently as, a, as an individual. This is not me pointing at you. This is all of us looking at one another and ourselves. And where are we? And how could we uh, uh, get these qualities back in our life or, or improve them? And the first thing I want you to notice is he says in verse 5, And besides all this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. I want to talk to you about that faith just real briefly. That faith that he's talking about there, add to your faith, uh, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience. He gives these things. The faith. That's the saving faith. That is, that is the faith by which you were born again. So that's given to you, basically. Yes. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For I guess you saved through faith, that not of yourself. So you, you've been given that faith, and that faith is the faith that has created in you a new nature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Now add to that faith. And so what it's giving us is it's giving us this picture of, of growth that we are to continue growing in that realm, that we're to add to it, that we're to, there's even the thought of exercising that faith and it producing these elements in our life, that as we exercise that faith, we do grow in the first one, virtue, and, and as we exercise that, we do grow in knowledge. And so 
we, we've got the faith, uh, if we're born again. And then he says, add to your faith virtue. And that word virtue uh, literally means excellent character. In fact, if you look up at uh, verse Verse 3, uh, speaking about Christ, it says, Through the knowledge of him that hath called us, uh, of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. The word virtue there in some scriptures, some of your versions, is going to be excellence. It's the same word. It's excellent uh, character. It's from the same root, I should say. And, it, and so we, we have the same root there, areti, or areti. I believe is what it is. A-R-E-T-E is the transliteration. So it means excellence of character, moral goodness. Uh, one, one thing I was reading uh, talked about uh, the Roman culture that would have been prevalent at this time. The, the, the idea of, of virtue or virtus is what their word is carried a more significant meaning. This is a quote. It characterized the very finest of Roman manhood, strength, valor, courage, and excellence. So when that's, that's what we need a revival of. Is we need a revival within the church family of strength, valor, courage, and excellence. And, and that, that when we see that, we would have a courageous Christian. We would have someone who was strong in what they believed, right in what they believed, strong in what they believed, courageous, outspoken in what they believed, willing to stand up and resist conformity to the world. That, that we would see a Christian that would do what was right no matter the cost, the consequent, or the constraint. That that, that believer through faith has become born again and they've added to that faith virtue, strength, courage, excellence and character. But that's a personal responsibility. We have to be that person. We have to add that. Look, next he says, knowledge. Uh, add to virtue knowledge or and to virtue knowledge is the correct reading there and and so that word knowledge that is gnosis understanding uh it indicates growth it, it is that we receive i want you to think about this for a moment i want you to think about the day after you got saved and we can go we could go to the top of the class or all the way down to the bottom of the class. When you got saved, you didn't exactly know what happened. You could not explain it to somebody else. Most of us were like that, that man born blind that could simply say, look, I don't know. What I know is I couldn't see and now I can. That's how most of us were. There was no real understanding of what occurred. There was, a, there was the, the word of God that was being preached. There was the spirit of God that was wooing. And there was a birth. And it was our new birth. And, and we know it took place. We know that something changed. We knew it was real. We knew it was different. But we couldn't explain it. But then what are we supposed to do with that? We're supposed to add knowledge to that. We're supposed to discover what happened. 
What did, how did that go down? Why did that take place? Uh, how, can, how can I know more about it? What would have happened if that wouldn't have took place? Why doesn't that take place for everybody? How can it take place for everybody? And we're studying, we're adding knowledge, and we're growing. And as we age and mature in faith, we should be adding knowledge. And I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But if you know as well as I do, there's a large number of people been saved and testifying to that salvation for 35 or 40 years. And they can no more tell you the gospel today than they could have then. Why? Because they have not added to their faith knowledge. Well, how do you add to your faith knowledge? You study. You read the word of God. You, you take out all excuses. It, it requires personal desire, determination, and discipline. Or it will not happen. It just won't happen. I can remember, and, and look, I, I have so many miles to go. I, I think of that old poem by Robert Frost so many times about... The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. And I think of my personal Bible study and, and that's where I think, man, what God has done for me and what God has given me and what God has provided for me is wonderful. And I could just sit back and relax in it and I could never expect anything else. But I have promises to keep and I have miles to go before I sleep and I have to keep digging and I can remember in my, my very uh, young Christian days after being saved for a decade, a decade I was saved before I started reading the Bible on my own. It's pathetic. And, and when I started reading it, I would get washed away in the genealogies. It would just, I mean, it would just wash me right out of it. I couldn't read it. And... So I got a paper flip chart. And I started a family tree with Adam and Eve. And my wife can attest to this. I wasn't teaching that to anybody. I didn't even particularly learn anything from it. Other than I realized every one of those names were mentioned because they were connected. And I made a family tree. It was five or six pages of a big flip chart. I remember I was teaching a 7th and 8th grade class. I was so excited about that uh, family tree when I completed it that I carried it in there to show it to them. And every one of them <laughs> fell asleep while I was showing it to them. It meant nothing to them. But you know what it was to me? That was personal responsibility to get through those genealogies. It's, it's, it, it's that adding knowledge. And then... That means, listen clearly, that if you attend church, every time the doors are open, but you never personally read and study the scriptures, you will not add knowledge to your faith. You won't grow. Uh, all this, and, and look, again, I don't, nobody has said anything to me. I'm not hurting anybody's feelings. I'm telling you, we've all been around it. We've all said these things. You hear somebody say, I left that church because that feature, what preacher wasn't feeding me? It's shameful. 
If, if you know the depth of that statement, you would never say it. It is shameful. You can leave for a million other reasons. Just don't make that the reason. It, it is that we have to feed ourselves, grow ourselves, add to ourselves in the study of the Word of God. Well, then you have the other side of it. Well, I'm just going to study the Bible all the time and I don't need the church. Well, there's two things I would say to that. First off, uh, go ahead, because if you truly study the Bible all the time, you'll be back. Because you're going to find out uh, that the New Testament was written for the church. And Christ loved the church and died for it. And so uh, you, can't, you can't do one or the other. It, it requires both. But you go ahead, if that's what you think, just go ahead and study. The Holy Spirit will do the rest. So, so we have this idea. We add virtue. We add knowledge. And then he says to knowledge, add temperance. Temperance is self-control. <laughs> Can I tell you the most underutilized gift in the church is self-control. It's horrible what we do that demonstrates a lack of self-control. How about this? If you've been in a meeting and somebody said, well, I wasn't going to say anything, but I just can't help myself. That's a lack of self-control. And by the way, you came in here tonight wanting to say that. It, it's that self-control that is not under the control of another person, not under the control of another substance, not under the control of another spirit. Self-control, the, the implication is in controlling the emotions, the appetites, the desires, the feelings, the actions. This is how the Apostle Paul talked about temperance. Uh, temperance. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I preach others, I should myself be a castaway. He is self-controlling. The Bible also says the prophet spirit is subject to the prophet. Uh, that means, that means even if you're doing something That the intention is to honor and glorify God. But you're doing it in such a way as to distract from Christ or call attention to self. And your response is, the Spirit moved on me and I couldn't help it. It wasn't the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit, the prophet Spirit is subject to the prophet. And so it's temperance. It's self-control. In other words, we should discipline ourselves so that we will have the, Christ, excuse me, will have the best of our lives. And by the way, temperance is, is not easy. I just said all that as if it should be summarily done. Uh, every one of us struggle with it. Some form or fashion. Patience is the next thing he says. And to temperance, patience. And patience, by the way, is, is endurance. I was reading one example today. Uh, the example was uh, people believe that patience is when you're sitting in traffic uh, and it's going to make you late for work, you don't lose your temper because you're patient. And his comment to that was, nope, that just means you have an excuse for being late for work. That's not patience. You should have left earlier, right? 
Why are you late? Well, I'm late because of traffic. No, you're late because you left too late. You should have left earlier. But when we're talking about patience, we're talking about endurance. We're talking about patience is the ability to wait peacefully and quietly without losing your, or it's not that. It is, it is the able to endure when trials come. That patience is what Job had. Uh, not that he was uh, perfect throughout that thing, but he never cursed God. He endured. And he endured for the most part with his belief system intact. It, it, is, it is the ability to endure uh, when things get hard. And guess what patience is built on? Patience is built upon knowledge and courage. Knowing and being strong enough to, to, to hold on. That's what patience is built on. So we would say uh, these are all steps or aids of one another. As I grow in knowledge, I'll increase in courage. And that courage will lead to more self-control. And that self-control will give me a greater endurance. Those are things that should be happening in the believer's life. It should be a process. I, I thought again. We're not going to get done. I thought again about uh, the story I've told so many times before about uh, the man, one of the men that trained me in the mechanic field, Bobby Cannon. And I remember I've told you that story about that little scrawny guy to go up under there and pull that 350 turbo up on his belly and stick his feet up on the bell housing and stick it in and start a bolt. I mean, lay it on the ground. And, and he tried to train me to do that. And, and I'd be grunting and, and, Cussing and kicking and, and struggling. And he would say something along the lines of, if you weren't in such a hurry, it wouldn't be so hard. And I'd be like, Bobby, it's heavy. That's why I'm in a hurry. It's heavy. And he would say, it's not heavy if you get it positioned right. You know it come out of there. You took it out. You know it'll go in. You know those bolts will go in that hole. Just put the transmission in. And uh, that's a kind of the idea of patience is, is that we, we, if we know the truth and we know that God is sovereign and we know that God is control and we know that these things are going to take place and, and we know that hard times are going to come and we know that those hard times come in order to grow us in endurance, then we can just muster up and do it. Doesn't make it easy, but it's there. The, the antithesis of self-control and patience would be displayed when desperation sets in. And desperation is typically a, a lack of preparation or a lack of knowledge or a combination of both. And it's come to a moment where something's got to happen and you don't know what else to do, so you just do something out of desperation. Godliness add to Temperance, patience, and add to patience, godliness. And that's just being godlike. It's just uh, uh, trying to ex exhibit the, 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 the characters, the characteristics of God. The, the greatest one being love. And, and, and he, he's, all believers should, be, should desire to be that way. We, we're, we're never going to fully accomplish it until we seem face to face. But our goal, our aim, our desire 
is that we're trying to grow uh, being conformed to the image of Christ. We're trying to be more godly, more godlike. And, and many times what we see is we see folk just give up. And this is what they'll say. God knows me. God knows how I am. Well, it's true, but it's not an excuse. And, and they're good people. They just, they, for whatever reason, something bad happened. There, there's bitterness in their life. There's anger in their life. Or, or they've just been trampled on. And they just decide, you know what? I'm, I'm not even going to strive for godliness anymore. I'm just going to be me. God loves me anyway. And he does love you anyway. And if you're born again, you're still going to go into, into glory to be in his presence. But what about all the time you've wasted and all the opportunities you could have shared God with somebody else? Which would be the goal. Then he says brotherly kindness. Add to godliness brotherly kindness. And that is that we should love the brethren. That's an imperative. You remember in fact Christ said to the disciples. This is how people are going to know. They're going to know you by your love for one another. They're going to know that you love. He's talking about within the body of Christ. He's talking about uh, you loving the body of Christ. It goes back to that idea, that idea of never going to church. How can you love somebody when you never go to church? You, you know, you can't, you can't go see them. You're not around them. You're not fellowshipping with them. Uh, you don't spend any time with them. You don't share with them. You don't sing with them. But he says here, look, that's, you need to add that to your faith. Love the brethren. Love the believer. And then, of course, he says charity, which we would think would be kind of redundant. But he was talking about loving the brethren. Now he's talking about loving those who aren't the brethren. Loving outside the church. It's, it's that, that picture of, of, of aimed at the world or outside, pardon me, of the family of God. That is, we are to love the sinner the way that Christ loved him. By the way, that doesn't mean that we sin with them or do their sin with them or participate in their sin with them. It means that we, as he's going to say in a moment, we remember that we have been purged of those things and they are no worse off than we were. And we love them in that. And we, the greatest way to love them is to share the gospel with them. Seek to win them to Christ. And... So he gives those things that we should add. And then in verse 8, he shows us the compensation of that diligence. Uh, if, if these things be in you, well, what things? Well, those seven things that he talks about. Those, those temperance and love and charity and, and kindness and, and all of those things that he mentions. Kindness wasn't one of them, but you, knowledge. And, and you, you see where I'm saying. And, and so if those things be in you, so he says in verse eight, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you should neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the compensation for practicing and adding those seven elements of holiness? Well, the first is that you will not be barren. Uh, your scriptures may say useless right there. You know why it would say useless? Because something that's barren is useless. What good is a fruit tree with no fruit? 
a garden with no produce, a, a cow that doesn't give milk or a horse that doesn't do work, they're, for all intents and purposes, they're useless. They're, they're not providing what they were intended to provide, what they were created to do. And for the born-again believer, we're designed to do a work. The, the, the scripture teaches that some 20, some 60, some 100 fold, but we all ought to be producing something. And depending on your position in the body, which is predetermined by God, then that's the position you ought to be fulfilling. And your position may not be in the pulpit. It may not be knocking on doors and sharing the gospel. It may be somewhere else, but you ought to be fulfilling that position in the body. That is fruitfulness and producing these things that you add to your faith. That is fruitfulness. So you won't be barren, nor will you be unfruitful. Paul says in Colossians 1.10, speaking to believers that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. These elements that we're talking about will produce further in the life of the believer those fruits of the Spirit that Paul speaks about in Galatians 5. That's fruitfulness. I have an old friend, and he's a friend. I respect him. But he's got his old Bible he's been using for probably 70 years. And in the front, the fly leaves of his Bible, he's got every name written down of every person he ever door to door knocked on and saved and led them to the Lord. And, and there's a lot of them. And for years I thought, man, I'll never be fruitful like him. And that's fruitfulness. But true fruitfulness is the fruit of the Spirit. Growing in conformity to Christ. Becoming who Christ intended you to be. Look at verse 9. He tells us the consequences of disregarding. Uh, and by disregard we mean non-reactive or non-responsive. There's an idleness or an overall lethargy or laziness in the way a person lives their redeemed life. And, and while they may be redeemed... They're still quite blind. And look what he says in verse 9. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his sins. And so they're still redeemed. He's been purged from his sins, but he, but he can't see it. He's, he's nearsighted. And, and what that basically means is he can't look around him and see the needs of the world. He can only look at himself and see his own needs. And forget the goodness that God has already gave him. He's so, or she is, so focused on themselves. And they've forgotten how sinful they were. They've forgotten about the pit and the mire and the shame. And that's what happens if we don't grow. I've been instructed most all of my life that you have to keep going or growing, as it were. Most of my young life, Long as I can remember, my dad used to always say, life is like swimming across a lake. You either keep swimming or you're going to sink. You can only dog paddle for so long, that's what he would say to me. It's a real nice thing to say to a 10-year-old kid. But, uh, you can only dog paddle for so long, you swim or sink. Can, can I tell you something? There's, there's a lot of wisdom in that because in Christianity or in the Christian walk, it's very much like that. 
you're either progressing or you're regressing. Uh, you're either growing or dying. You're never just holding ground. We're never instructed to hold the fort. We're never instructed to stay the same. Finally, in verses 10 through 15, there's a challenge that exercise diligence. Once again, we're met with the idea of personal responsibility. In verse 10, he says, uh, make your calling and election sure. If you do these things, you shall never fail. It's, it's that picture of you. And, and the, the question that would come from that is, are we growing? Are we bearing fruit? Are we becoming more like Christ? Do we remember what God has done for us? Have we shared that with anybody else? Because this is the truth. And Peter's going to spend time on it over the next several weeks. To guard against perversion. To guard against false doctrine. To guard against false teachers. In a healthy body. Uh, what is needed is a healthy body of healthy members. So the question then would be quite simple. Are we healthy? Are we healthy? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this night. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings and for your mercies. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to, to be introspective, Lord, that we would look at ourselves. We would challenge ourselves. God, we pray for growth in the life of every believer. Help us, Lord, as we seek to add these things to our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.